1: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number six in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, March the 23rd. First of all, I talk to Wade Tink. While serving in East Timor as an Australian Army officer in 2006, Tink, who was 23 at the time, was appalled by the incompetence of high profile international organisations denying help to those they were sent there to assist. It was this situation and many other similar circumstances that sparked a fire within Tink he felt motivated to build an organisation that not only benefited those in needs, but also those working within it. This is what eventually led him to take over social enterprise Project Everest. After leaving the army, Tink began working in trading and eventually joined a wealth management firm where he created and built up the Sydney office over two years. The experience in the finance sector, as well as his army background, led Tink to concentrate his interests on the developing world. When Tink first learned about the social enterprise, Project Everest, in 2015, he saw its potential straight away and bought 80% of the company with his fellow partners. Project Everest is a social enterprise that aims to solve the world's social issues by building financially sustainable solutions through business. It partners with universities all over Australia to create projects in developing countries to help solve local community problems. And then... I have a chat with AMP Capital Chief Economist Dr. Shane Oliver, focusing on all the geopolitical events now shaping the market this year. But first, let's talk to Wade Tink. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
2: Post your free job on linkedin.com/people
1: today. White Tink, tell us about Project Everest.
2: Okay, so Project Everest is a business set up to solve social issues in developing countries by making products and services that are socially beneficial to those communities. So there's 4 billion people currently living on less than $5 a day and we're seeking to make products that can service that market. How we do it and how we organise ourselves is through universities and we work with university students and send them overseas as part of the academic coursework to work in teams to create these solutions
1: so what sort of solutions are we talking about here
2: yeah so to give you an example in agriculture space we've been looking in many different spaces but in the agricultural space in australia the average farm is 800 hectares it's a very profitable driven organization like or a business it's treated as a business and ultimately we're looking at you know a tertiary level of understanding for those people who work in that space. If you're a farmer, this is a high stakes game. And people who consult into that space usually charge about $20,000 right right. to you know get up this in that agricultural output so if you look at a developing country for example like Fiji which is where we've originally started this project the average farm is about five hectares it's subsistence or family type farming and you know in terms of their level of understanding it's quite low relative because they don't have access to good agricultural information education and agronomist input so what we found is they're willing to pay about $200 per annum for agricultural advice to help them uplift their crop yields. So that's one hundredth of the price of what you pay in Australia. And what we're servicing now with that clientele base is to develop a digital solution to provide agricultural advice just through their smartphones Advice on basically using soil mapping data, uh, weather, drone data to basically provide advice on what to grow, when to grow it, when to harvest, what type of pesticides to use, that kind of thing. That's what we're in the process of doing. That's the kind of things that we do and achieve.
1: And what countries are you servicing?
2: So we're working in the moment at Fiji, Cambodia, Timor-Leste and Malawi. And we intend to expand to more countries as we go forward, but they're just the current ones that we're operating in.
1: So what actually motivated you to set this company up?
2: It was a variety of factors. However, when I was in Timor, back when I was in the military, I saw, like, I, I was very idealistic. Some would say stupid um, and naive when I was young. And I had that, you know, that passion about that young people have, and particularly university, about helping the world. I thought I would do it best through the military initially. Obviously, there's a fault right there. But I went over to operations in Timor, and in seeing what I saw of the organizations, the UN, and how they operated, I got quite disillusioned. And I ultimately am still serving the military as a reserve officer. However, when I left, I knew I wanted to do something in this space. I started to work with some charities in Sydney and I really got passionate about working with uni students and then uh, the opportunity came up with Project Everest so I developed it with some other people it's certainly not my own thing and we've gone from there and it's difficult every day and we haven't got all the solutions we're trying to work out how to do things differently and be creative in how you approach you know working in developing countries.
1: And I'd imagine it would be terrific for the universities too because it's a way of developing their students, isn't it?
2: Yeah, the universities are trying to achieve multiple things and one of the key things is it's a global marketplace and their students, they want them to have cultural experience and cultural interchange and cultural competence is what they call it because, you know, for instance, our company works across nine different countries now and we're just a start-up. Like, we're in a scaling up phase, but we're quite new. So if you look at, you know, my friends' companies and other people that are growing companies, most of them are operating in multiple markets. So, you know, having an understanding of how to do that. Secondly, the experience of going overseas and working on real-world problems and relating it back to the degree that they're doing and their, their space in what they're, they're learning – there's multiple angles in which universities benefit and also the multidisciplinary environment as well. Usually if an engineer students going through university, they're just working with engineers. They don't work with business students or they don't work with art students, whereas this we're making teams that are multidisciplinary so we get different perspectives and better outcomes. So, yeah, it works really well for the universities.
1: So you would have different students from different disciplines working on one project, for example. Would that be right?
2: That's exactly it. We try and balance it as much as we can. Um, so that we have those range of students. Most of the students that we source would be engineering, business, and science students, and we try and balance it as much as we can in the teams. Some teams just require engineering students, but we found that when we do have teams of solely engineering students, it usually leads to worse outcomes, um, because people didn't bring their own strengths and weaknesses, and there's also usually a I'm generalising, but there's usually a personality type that is attracted to engineering, and it's better to have a range or a mix of different people working together. As you can see, you know, in multiple diversity studies that have been done, diversity leads to better outcomes, so that's what we find as well.
1: So how many and what type of projects do you have underway?
2: We've got a range. It's about between 9 to 15, but the thing is with these projects is that a lot of them don't succeed just being frank, like the intent is to obviously create or match a a product and service that is socially beneficial with a sustainable business model. However, we found that, you know, you might have good ideas and, you know, see that how this can pan out, but interactions and moving forward, it just becomes untenable. And with 9 out of 10 businesses failing, I think the stats are in the first five years, I don't know exactly, you know, trying to do this, we're going to encounter similar problems. And so we've had a lot that haven't succeeded, um, just being completely upfront, And, you know, some of them are moving towards where we want to see them go to, which is where they get external investment and they go on to scale up themselves. And then when we're in the process of that with one of our ventures and we've done it in the past and we're trying to work towards more as we go forward.
1: So you mentioned agriculture as one type of project. Any other types?
2: Yeah, so we've done stuff in and we're doing stuff in health. We're doing stuff in environmental sustainability. So it's around waste and waste treatment, also around water, water infrastructure and water sanitation. So they're the main kind of areas we've looked at and also fuel and energy as well. So different types of fuel usage, renewables, all that kind of stuff that we're trying to work into.
1: And how many universities are you working with, and is that expanding?
2: We're excited to ultimately work with the major ones in Sydney, nearly all of them, and then we work with Adelaide University, so University of Adelaide, University of South Australia, and we're now starting with Melbourne with Monash and RMIT, which is great because we originally started out in Sydney, and we're also now in Singapore with National University of Singapore NUS. I've done work with SMU. We're not currently taking the students at the moment. We've done some work with them. And then in Dublin and London, we're building out a partnerships there. And so with UCL, Kings, Trinity, UCD, DCU. So yeah, that's all in the process. And we've built those relationships, but these students will be coming on for summer next year, which is 2018, June, July, August. So
1: yeah. That sounds like uh, you've got some real growth plans happening there. I mean, potentially, you could be expanding this quite massively because the universities are right around the world.
2: Exactly. and It's interesting. We are going about that 100% and it's been like, you know, all go for growth. And it's been, you know, that kind of growth stress that I know that you've probably talked to multiple business owners about. Um, and it's been great. However, we also, I think at this point, we need to, we're consolidating ourselves as well and just getting our processes and practices right, given the amount of growth that we've already had and what we're seeking to do overseas. So it makes sense operationally for us to expand into the Northern Hemisphere so that we can carry out more work over in developing countries uh and so we're focused on that and in australia we are trying to get our processes correct and potentially slow down a little bit of the growth that we've had so far
1: and manage your growth better as you expand
2: yeah exactly i mean it's always a challenge to manage growth like we have found personally and what i've seen with people around me managing growth is is challenging so you feel like two steps forward one step back at times but we're really proud of what we have achieved. And it's been an insane sweat effort from the team and in our amazing community that are rallying around us to help us to do this. So it's awesome.
1: Well, Wade Tink, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Leon.
2: I really appreciate it.
1: And now let's talk to economist Shane Oliver. Shane Oliver, I have to ask you, the markets have been responding to things like Donald Trump's tariff hikes, uh, the sacking of Tillerson. Of course, you've got the uh, messy Italian election. Uh, What's going on?
0: I think there's a bunch of factors that have sort of come together. Um, Firstly, you saw very strong gains in some markets through last year, particularly the U.S. share market. That had left markets vulnerable to a, a bit of a correction. A uh, bit of a pullback, and of course we started to see that in early February with the worries about U.S. inflation and how much the Fed would raise interest rates by. Then we saw the reemergence, I guess, of what you might call geopolitical risk, um, obviously around the issues around Donald Trump on trade, uh, how far that would go, um, and then of course the uh, the um, ever-changing lineup in his team, the turnover in his uh, White House team. Uh, Gary Cohen leaving Tillerson and so on and then of course the messy Italian election so these things have sort of come at a time when the markets were already somewhat vulnerable already a bit nervous about the outlook nervous about how much the Fed would raise interest rates by Um, and that's just sort of adding to this volatility and I think the underlying reality is that we have to allow that this year is going to be a more volatile year we've seen uh, uh, US inflation indicators start to pick up so that's going to be a source of volatility and the geopolitical issues look like they're going to be a, a continuing source of volatility for some time to come as well, because at the end of the day, this is a, an election year in the US. The midterm elections are in November um, and Donald Trump is not your ordinary politician. Uh, Republicans are behind the, in the polls. Good chance they'll actually lose control of the House. Donald Trump's obviously trying to appeal to his base to uh, shore up Republican support ahead of those elections. And they're not not to November, so could be a bit more volatility to come as we go through this year.
1: Now, I mean, uh, geopolitical events have always been important, but like in the 80s and 90s, the trend was pretty positive because you had uh, the markets embracing economic rationalist solutions, uh, free markets, the collapse of communism, uh, global trade was surging. Everything has changed now.
0: It has. Uh, I, I, I kind of think it's sort of like the, the, the normal swing of the political pendulum, but these swings can occur over decades. So right, as we went through the 80s and 90s, the political pendulum swung in a very favourable direction. In fact, uh, Francis Fukuyama wrote a book in the early 90s called uh, The End of History, as if you know, the whole world suddenly agreed that liberal free market democracies are the way to go. And then as time's gone by, it's become increasingly clear that, well, maybe not some countries who want to go the other way. We, uh, I mean, a whole bunch of issues are coming together here. I mean, the GFC, post-GFC recovery has taken longer to occur than normal. That's upset many people. We've seen the rise in inequality. Again, that's upset a a group of people. That's led to scepticism about so-called trickle-down economics. Free market solutions are sort of uh, being questioned uh, and then at the same time, America used to be, you know, in the in the post-Cold War period, America was the global cop. It was a unipolar world, so to speak, um, whereas now lots of other countries are challenging the U.S. Obviously, Russia is sort of, to some degree, going trying to go back to its Soviet era past. Um, China is, uh, is soon going to be the world's biggest economy, so they're flexing their muscles. So it's, we, we've come into a much messier world, and we've seen... To some degree, all of that has led to these uh, strong men in government, Putin, obviously, in, in Russia, uh, Xi Jinping in China, um, Trump in the US. And, of course, um, they're perhaps less dip- diplomatic than the previous generation of leaders were. So I think eventually the, the, the political pendulum will swing back the other way, but it could take a while before that happens. In the meantime, uh, these things are just potential sources of volatility.
1: Now, I mean, the other complicating issue uh, that's adding to the geopolitical trends is, of course, social media, where people are actually making their own reality, and uh, that means we're becoming more populist.
0: That's right. Uh, the old days, you'd come home and turn on the news, and you'd you'd get. Uh, I mean, in Australia, you know, it was ABC, Channel Nine, Channel Ten, Channel Seven, and variants on that, um, and they'd present things in a fairly even-handed fashion. Generally speaking, we can all debate that. But these days, if you don't like uh, something being even-handed, you disagree with it, you can switch across to, you know, a far-right interpretation or a far-left interpretation and make your own reality just uh, following your favourite channel on YouTube or whatever. (laughs) So um, that in turn has led to a group of politicians who will pander to that, you know, certain politicians, you know, I think at the end of the day, I mean, one one um, thing that gave me a lot of confidence last year was in France, where Emmanuel Macron said to the whirlpool workers that he can't necessarily guarantee their jobs, whereas Donald Trump would sort of jump in and say, hey, we can guarantee your jobs, we'll stop imports coming in. Um, I thought the Emmanuel Macron approach was a more honest one, um, but uh, a lot of politicians aren't, uh, aren't willing to go down the honest path, and they'll te- tell people what they want to hear. And that's... To agree is what we're seeing happen so the social media phenomenon yes people making their own realities choosing the media that suits their their view of the world um but unfortunately politicians will uh will pander to that and end up we end up with populist solutions which may not be the best solutions in a long-term sense a lot of people yes believe in popular in uh, protectionism in the u.s putting tariffs on but that's not going to lead to a, a long-term solution to and, or the best outcome anyway, for American workers. Um, I think all it will lead to is artificially supporting jobs but high, high cost base for the US and uh, reduced global trade and uh, consumers will be worse off at the end of the day.
1: Now, I mean, the, the issue for Trump is, of course, he's facing several big challenges, like you've got, obviously, you've got the congressional elections in November, with the Republicans risking losing control of the House. And you've also got the Mueller Inquiry uh, closing in, which is going to put pressure on him to uh, uh, create all sorts of distractions. Wouldn't that be right?
0: That, that's right, Leon. I think uh, yeah, there's a lot of issues coming together for Donald Trump uh, this year. Last year, you can argue, well, yeah it wasn't a an election year there's a few by elections if you call them that in the US but it wasn't it wasn't an election year and so he was uh, free to focus on what you might call a pro business agenda you know tax cuts deregulation and so on which was also lined up pretty well with what republicans in the US want so that turned out to be pretty good and markets that markets were happy with that this year of course it is uh, an is an election year so he's gone back to his uh, populist approach, the one we saw through the election campaign to some degree. And of course, the Mueller inquiry uh, is closing in, um, getting closer to, uh, to him, um, even uh, delving into the Trump organisation in terms of their books. So uh, that's obviously creating a lot of tension. And of course, uh, the risk is that he lashes out um, and that adds to that tension. Now, I think at the end of the day, he won't be impeached. Um, the Democrats may try if they get control of the uh, the lower house, but um, I, I think it's very unlikely the Senate will will find the 70% majority necessary to remove him from office, even if he is found guilty of something. Um, but obviously, those things will create uh, uncertainty in markets as they proceed. Uh, lots of parallels or comparisons to Richard Nixon back in the 1970s, so that is another source of volatility. I guess. These things are all there, that the big hope, and this is you know, the way I see things panning out, that this volatility will continue. These things will keep flaring up, messier year than last year. But as long as the global economy remains in good shape, and I think it probably will, then that underpins good profit growth and therefore keeps shares in a rising trend. It's just that it's a more constrained environment and a more volatile environment than what we saw last year.
1: Well, the other $64 question is what are the prospects of a trade war, Uh, uh, you know, a global trade war or or perhaps a US-China trade war?
0: Well, that's a good question. And that, of course, is what uh, markets are trying to sort of work out at the moment. Uh, It looks to me like there's more to go on the trade or the tariff front from Donald Trump. He said as much when he announced, formally announced the uh, tariffs on steel and aluminium, he said there'll be more tariffs to come. Uh, looks like that focus is going to be on China. There's currently a what they call a 301 investigation under the the Trade Act in the US um, in relation to allegations of the theft of intellectual property um, by the Chinese from the US. And um, I, I suspect there's a good chance they'll they'll uh, come up with some sort of penalty on China, which might involve or likely to involve an increase in tariffs on certain goods and investment restrictions on the Chinese going into the U.S. But putting aside the issues of whether that's a good thing or not, um, the the debate then becomes, as you say, whether we'll have a trade war. Uh, And my feeling is that we probably won't see a global trade war. I don't think you'll go much further than what we've already seen in terms of steel and aluminium. And other countries will probably focus, probably, I say, probably focus on going through the World Trade Organization, Um, They may put um, uh, matching tariffs on the US, similar size tariffs, but I don't think we'll go down the path of a trade war. Um, But the real risk is is a trade war with China. And that's obviously where Australia could get drawn in. Um, I'm hoping that Donald Trump's approach will be a bit like what we saw with the steel and aluminium. You go in tough, make a lot of noise and then uh, you back down, make it a bit more reasonable by the time you finally settle on something and that it'll use that approach that he uh, described in the art of the deal. You know, you put up something extreme um, and hoping to cut some sort of deal with the uh, the Chinese. Um, But all of that will still create a lot of uh, noise along the way. Um, But I think at the end of the day, we probably do avoid a trade war. But, yeah, we could see a bit of a lot more noise on this front before we know for sure that we will avoid it. Um, So that's going to be an ongoing issue.
1: So all of this is something for investors to digest as the year goes ahead, but you say the market should continue to be okay because of economic fundamentals?
0: Well, I think the fundamentals are pretty good. We're looking at profit growth in the US of 20%, uh, a bit less in Europe and Japan, and, of course, around 7% in Australia, and that should be enough to keep share markets on a rising trend, particularly if interest rates remain relatively low. Uh, we're going to see uh, the U.S. raise rates three or four times this year. We're, we're, we're looking at four. Um, I think the market's closer to three, but I think ultimately be four times. But still, it's going to leave U.S. interest rates at pretty low levels. Um, if we get four hikes this year, that will take U.S. interest rates um, by the end of the year to a range of um, 225 to 2.5%, which is a lot higher than what they've been over the last few years down around zero, but uh, still low by historical standards and still consistent with relatively easy monetary policy in the US. And it's very hard to see other central banks raising interest rates this year. The Reserve Bank, um, we thought they would, but the way things are going, we've given up on that one. Looks like that's going to be a 2019 story. Hard, to, Very hard to see the Japanese moving and hard to see the Europeans moving before the middle of next year. So it's still going to be an environment of reasonably good or pretty good Global economic growth, good profit growth, even in Australia, and uh, pretty low interest rates, which I think ultimately should favour growth assets like shares um, as we go through the year. It's just that these geopolitical issues, um, issues around the Fed, they're going to cause ongoing bouts of volatility as the year proceeds.
1: Well, Shane Oliver, it's always delightful talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. It's
0: been my pleasure, Leon. Thanks for having me on.
1: Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, political anger in Washington, Europe and Britain and investor fear of a regulatory backlash against the platform firms has spooked markets. This week saw Facebook shares suffering their worst day since 2012 by falling nearly 7% and it infected other tech companies in the US. Dragging down the blue chip Dow Jones Industrial Average 1.7% and the broad S&P 500 down 1.8%. And what's causing this? Well, media reports revealed that Cambridge Analytica, a data analytics firm used by Donald Trump's campaign, inappropriately accessed the personal data of some 50 million Facebook users to target them during the 2016 US presidential election, against US rules. Now, Democratic and Republican senators are demanding Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg face a congressional hearing about the company's conduct. And across the Atlantic, Europeans are incensed. European Parliament President Antonio Tajani said the allegations of misuse of use of data was, in his words, an unacceptable violation of our citizens' privacy rights. Now, big tech platform companies are facing a myriad of of potential regulatory hits to their profits and operating models. Europe is planned to unveil a new tax on the international digital firms. Antitrust pressures are building on the operating models of Facebook and Google, including an investigation into the advertising platforms by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. It's a sharp reversal from the Barack Obama era after the first black president was credited with winning the so-called first Facebook election in 2008. And to Australia... And the Reserve Bank Board of Australia put out its report from its meeting two weeks ago when it kept interest rates on hold and it revealed that high household debt and the lack of definitive pick-up in wages growth were the key reasons for its decision. And in another sign that monetary policy is to remain stalled in 2018, the minutes showed that there'd be need for faster wage growth before inflation gathers strength. Other important piece of news is that billionaire James Packer has stepped down from the board of Crown Resorts. A brief statement to the market from Crown said Mr Packer had resigned for personal reasons. And a statement from Mr Packer's company, Consolidated Press Holdings, said, Mr James Packer today resigned from the board of Crown Resorts Limited for personal reasons. Mr Packer is suffering from mental health issues. At this time, he intends to step back from all commitments. Crown's Executive Chairman John Alexander said the board respected the decision. Now, Meyer has plunged to a $476.2 million loss and it suspended its dividend for the six months ending January after slashing the value of goodwill and brand names by $515 million and booking $13.7 million in redundancy and store exit costs. Underlying net profit before write-downs and restructuring costs plunged 36.1% to $40.1 million. And Chairman Gary Hounsell said, Maya remained within all financing covenants despite the write-downs, but was in discussions with bankers to refinance facilities due to expire next year. Now, the Australian Council of Trade Unions has demanded... The gig economy and labour hire workers should get the same minimum conditions as employees, including access to unfair dismissal and collective bargaining. ACTU Secretary Sally McManus outlined the ambitious demands of its Change the Rule campaign at the National Press Club in Canberra, with policies for fair work uh, and fair pay and secure work, including a right for casuals to convert to permanent employment. The campaign is backed by the largest advertising blitz the union movement has conducted since its 2007 Your Rights at Work campaign to end the Howard-era work choices policy, and it will put pressure on Labor to seek a mandate for substantial industrial relations reform if it retakes government. McManus said that many Australians are trapped in casual employment for an average of three years because they're, in her words, given no other option by big business. The ACTU policy calls for casual employment to be properly defined and for a right to convert to permanent positions after six months to prevent employers denying casuals basic rights. Now, the Banking Royal Commission kicked off its second week this week, uncovering scandal after scandal by interrogating executives from ANZ and Commonwealth Bank. ANZ still accused of breaking responsible lending laws by taking no steps to verify the living expenses declared for mortgage applicants. Later, CBA came under fire for aggressively selling credit card insurance to pensioners, students and unemployed people who did not meet the eligibility requirements to make a claim. CBA's head of retail products, Clive Van Horen, admitted the bank breached its reporting obligation to ASIC under intense questioning by counsel assisting the commission, Rowena or QC. He initially denied the bank misled the corporate regulator back in 2015, when it significantly under reported the number of people to whom it sold credit card insurance, which they couldn't claim on. The Commission heard CBA notified the regulator of only 27,800 customers being affected, and this was despite the bank's internal review, finding the true figure was more than double at 64,000. Mr Van Horne conceded this was, in his words, a breach of our obligations to act honestly, efficiently and fairly. Earlier, Mizor put it to ANC's General Manager of Home Loans and Retail Lending, Will Bank Rel Rankin, that the bank was falling short of responsible lending laws and ASIC guidelines by failing to verify the living expenses declared by mortgage applicants. Mizor pointed out that the National Credit Act prohibits ANZ from entering into a loan with a customer without making reasonable inquiries about the customer's financial situation and taking reasonable steps to verify the customer's financial situation. ANZ's head of home loans and retail lending later elaborated on how little the bank does to verify customers' declared expenses, despite being required to do that. Now, the new chairman... Of the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, James Shipton says financial services staff lack professionalism and that's eroded trust in the financial system. In his first speech since taking over the corporate watchdog, the former Hong Kong regulator, Goldman Sachs and banker and Harvard University academic said he'd make it his mission to lift the standards of the industry and his own organisation if necessary. Now, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission chairman pointed towards the creation of the Financial Advisors Standards and Ethics Authority as a policy tool to lift standards and said he was prepared to pursue this approach again. His comments were made at the opening of ASIC's annual forum in Sydney. He warned that sustained degradation in trust in the people in finance will eventually degrade trust in the financial infrastructure itself and he said that would be catastrophic. He added that while there was a high degree of trust in the financial system infrastructure at this point, The sad conclusion must be that Australians don't look to people in finance with enough trust, he said. Mr Shipton said he questioned whether Australians felt they were getting value from providers in the sector. He acknowledged that the industry was battling to come up with ways to restore trust. Following Mr Shipton's comments, the Minister for Revenue and Financial Services, Kelly O'Dwyer, announced that ASIC would be granted more power and high-level resources. And Mr Shipton will get a second Deputy chairman, and the law will be changed to make advancing competition one of ASIC's core objectives. Now the Turnbull Government has created a new class of visa to compete with other countries and allow big business and tech startups to hire overseas talent for highly skilled roles. It's established a global talent scheme which has two streams. the first is for established businesses with an annual turnover of more than four million. The second is aimed at technology-based and STEM-related start-up businesses. A four-year temporary skill shortage visa will be issued with permanent resident applications available after three years in both streams. And it will allow big businesses to use the scheme to fill up to 20 positions with a minimum salary of $180,000 per year with foreign candidates expected to pass on their skills to Australian colleagues. Start-ups will be able to employ five positions per year through the scheme, which must pay more than 53900 The new scheme is different from the 457 visas because they don't designate a list of occupations. The government is now promising simpler applications and faster processing. The changes come after the tech industry criticised the ending of the 457 visa class and replacing it with a temporary skill shortage visa class, which is considerably more expensive and restrictive than its predecessors and has a limited list of eligible roles. Now, more than 11,000 internode and iinet customers will be compensated for not getting the national broadband network speeds promised in their contracts, The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission said that 8,000 IINET customers and more than 3,000 internode customers will be offered compensation. Customers will be able to move to lower speed tiers plans. Alternatively, they could receive a refund or exit their plan Taking into account Telstra's 42,000 aggrieved customers, Optus's 8,700, and TPG's 8,000, the addition of IONet and InterNode brings a total number of Australians able to claim compensation for slow MBN speeds to about 70,000. An outdoor clothing retailer, Kathmandu, has posted a 23% lift in its net profit to... 12.3 million New Zealand dollars, that's 11.5 million Aussie, and that's its strongest result in four years. And it's announced its acquisition of US based hiking boot company Oboz for US 75 million or 97 million Aussie. And that's it for this week. And next week, we have a terrific interview with Ryan Murtag, the CEO of NETO, and he's going to be talking to us all about the government's new visa scheme and whether that works out for startups. In the meantime, you can listen to us on Talking B-I-Z-Z on Twitter or on Facebook. Looking forward to bring you the news next week.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.